Okay. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 4, or you can just follow along there. Uh, Revelation 4 is a vision of heaven. Uh, we're back in our series on Revelation. We've gotten through the first couple of chapters. Uh, the, the, the first few chapters usually make a little bit more sense, and then it gets a little uh, difficult after that. But uh, Revelation 4 is a glorious vision. It's a vision of heaven. It's a vision of heavenly worship. Uh, many great songs of the Christian church come from this. Uh, vision of heaven. In a few minutes, we're going to sing one of them. It's one of the most famous hymns ever written in the English language. It's holy, holy, holy. And that word, uh, thrice repeated, is a wonderful little word, word, holy. It's a word that describes what resists description. We use it to speak or to sing of a God who is set apart a God who is not like us, a God who is strange to us, yet who is also captivating. We use it to, to speak or sing of a God who is unpredictable, always surprising, yet always faithful, always there for us. This word, uh, holy, is used to describe a God who is unfamiliar to us, yet who strikes a resonating chord in us. It's a God who is not diminished by creating, not diminished by sharing, not diminished even by giving himself away to us. <clears throat> a holy God is a God whom we cannot perceive, yet whose being sustains our being. Uh, a holy God is one who invites us to dwell with him in intimacy, in his unapproachable light. Uh, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours, and yet he has made himself truly known to us, and his ways and his thoughts become our comfort and our strength and our joy, and we must erupt in praise, singing holy, holy, holy. We sing with praise, uh, we, with only partial understanding, because he's holy, and who can find out all his ways? And yet, even though our understanding is only partial, we sing praise because he is holy. And uh, so our passage this morning is a glimpse of heaven. It's a glimpse of uh, the place where God is central. It's the place where God's holiness is impossible to miss. And that's what makes it wonderful and overwhelming and awesome. Uh, that's what makes it heaven. So let's pray, and then we'll read about John's vision of heaven. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, Holy Son... And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've made yourself known to us. We thank you that we can name you the thrice holy one in three. We thank you that we can read this true account of you in your heavenly glory. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be our vision, that you would set our minds on things that are above, things uh, where Jesus is in heaven, not the things of the earth. We pray that you grant us faith to see this whole world in light of this vision of heaven and your glorious holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Revelation 4. After this, I looked... 
and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so it's an amazing chapter. Uh, it's worth studying closely and taking a long time to study it. Uh, almost every word of this vision is a thread that's connected to themes that run throughout the scriptures. They're woven together here to form the most beautiful tapestry. I wish we could take the time to trace every thread. Um, actually woke up early this morning and cut about half of my sermon away so that it would be like a normal sermon length. <laughs> Uh, because we just can't do it. We can't take the time uh, to look at, at all the details. We'll have to be selective about what we explore. Uh, but um, if you go to the church blog uh, this week, the going deeper questions about the, the sermon text, uh, there will be more details in there. Uh, but first, let me give just some brief context for what is happening in this chapter. Uh, Jesus has come to John and, uh, in, in a vision full of symbols to encourage John and to encourage the churches to enduring faithfulness at a time when they face many trials and temptations. The great encouragement Christians need at times like that is the revelation of Jesus Christ himself, the one who conquered through his faithfulness, through his death, uh, through his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. So, that's the encouragement Jesus seeks to give, is a revelation of himself. So in chapters 4 and 5, uh, Jesus is encouraging John and us with a vision of his own ascension. That's what chapters 4 and 5 are about, is the ascension of Jesus to heaven after his death and resurrection. 
So these chapters belong together. Chapter 4 is the setup for chapter 5. So in a sense, it's incomplete without continuing on to chapter 5. And we sort of stopped in the middle of the scene. And we will go back uh, next week and look at some of these details. Like we're not even going to talk about the angels of the living creatures today. But we can talk about those a little bit next week as part of the setup for chapter 5. So there's so much going on in this vision of heaven, even though it's not exactly a current scene in heaven with Jesus Christ himself seated on God's throne. Uh, John has a difficult time putting his experience into words, even though he has an ex excellent command of language. We know that from his writings. Uh, it's just that, he, that what he's attempting to describe surpasses comprehension. Even if he had taken high-definition video of it, it couldn't do it justice. Um, all the prophets and apostles who had visions of heaven wrote about what they saw in the same ways. Um, they say, well, it was something like this or that, or it had the appearance of this or that when they describe the details of their visions of heaven or God's presence. <clears throat> but rather than be dismayed that we don't have a more substantial description, we can be thankful that God has accommodated for our creaturely perspective at all, um, that he's condescended to do that at all. God allowed John to see glory, something that's really inconceivable. And he allowed him to see it in terms that he could at least partially conceive and therefore communicate. So in order to allow for some conception and some communication of his glory, God establishes and uses metaphor or likeness. <clears throat> And he's done this since the beginning, since the creation. He created things like jasper and carnelian and emerald gems. And he gave them their unique properties of hardness and beauty. And these gems are like solid light. And he gave us the, uh, these, these gems to help us to conceive of his own attributes. God's attributes are more real they're more substantial even than the strongest, most brilliant gemstones. He is a rock. He is my rock, as we've sung the, the children's song. He's a rock, and created rocks derive all their rockiness from him. He established the likeness through his creation. He created the elements of this symbolic language that he's now using so that we could learn about him through what he has made. Not only has he created things like gems to say something about him, he has said that these created things say something about him. He has made the metaphor, he's made the likeness explicit. So one of the best examples of this is in the sanctuary itself, that physical place, the tabernacle that God instructed Moses and the people of Israel to construct. He says in Exodus 25, speaking to Moses, he says, Exactly as I show you concerning the patterns of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And in Hebrews chapter 8, uh, this tabernacle is called a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So Moses, he went up to the mountain and he had a vision of God's holy heavenly presence. And the tabernacle with all its furniture, with the decorations, with the priestly garments, and all the priestly operations. The tabernacle was explicitly said to reflect 
the more real realities of heaven. These things are copies and shadows of heaven to give us some conception and some ability to communicate what heaven is like. And what you find as you walk through John's vision of heaven here in chapter four is that we're already familiar with so many of the details because of what God has made and because of what God has revealed before in the scriptures, because God has already been using these symbols and metaphors and likenesses, especially in the tabernacle or, or in the temple. Heaven, this, this vision that we're seeing in Revelation 4, it's a temple. It's the temple. It's the place that gives true meaning to the earthly temple. It's the place where the Holy Lord dwells in glory with his creatures. It's the place where his presence is absolutely commanding. The place where he cannot be ignored. The place where, wonderfully, his holiness cannot be overlooked. But it's known and revered and celebrated. And this is the, the appropriate response to God, to the centrality of God. And the first thing John sees when he enters heaven is, Behold! It's like startling. It's like a surprise. Behold, a throne with one seated on the throne. It's the first thing he sees. The sovereign God is central and everything is organized around his, his holy royal presence. Heaven is not an obscure peripheral place where irrelevant things happen. Heaven is the nexus of creation. It's the core. It's the command center. It's literally here, the throne room of creation. It's the place where things are as they should be. Heaven is the place where things are as they shall be. Heaven is the place from which God rules over all that he has made. It's not a peripheral place. It's a central place. <clears throat> when John has the privilege of seeing this little glimpse of heaven, God is giving him and us a vision of what is really true in spite of the way things seem to be going on earth. We can easily mistake and easily misinterpret events in this world as if it were all just chaos and disorder and evil running rampant. And the ocean, the sea, is a biblical symbol for such chaos in this world. Throughout the scriptures, the sea is a picture of chaos, especially the chaos of uh, human beings in their rebellion against God. And looking out upon this world often feels like standing on the edge of the vast sea, looking out over its raging, terrifying waves that stretch on for miles, for thousands of miles. Who could possibly master such chaos? It's terrifying. Yet in verse 6, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. So God is the one who rules with such complete sovereignty that all the chaos and disorder and evil running rampant in the world is like a perfectly calm sea of glass before him. So calm, so still, that you could stride out upon it like pavement of sapphire. And the Lord Jesus demonstrated exactly this authority in the miracle 
which was a symbolic miracle, when he walked upon the waves of the sea and calmed the storm to take away the fears of his disciples. No swell, no wave, no breaker can threaten the perfect order of his rule. No circumstances in this world, no rebellion can overthrow him. Not even when the nations rose up against the Lord and put him on the cross. Even this was yet another demonstration of his holy power to create out of nothing, to bring order out of chaos, to bring good out of evil, to bring our salvation out of a world of sin and rebellion, to bring victory out of the midst of defeat. This is a demonstration of his holy power. As it says in Psalm 65, he stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. And Psalm 89, which actually um, <clears throat> uh, overlays pretty well onto our passage of Revelation 4 this morning. Psalm 89, verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones? and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So this vision of God's heaven, it isn't just an escape to another more peaceful realm. It's an assurance that God, who is the creator and the ruler and the judge, of all things, that God is in fact enthroned, he's at the helm, he's aware, he's attentive, and he's centrally involved. If you do find a sense of peace in the knowledge of what heaven is like, it's, it's not meant to be the, the kind of peace that you have an escape from the terrible moments. It's meant to transfer to a sense of peace as you live your life on earth, knowing that this one is enthroned, that this one is aware that this one is involved. And that sense of peace comes from personally knowing him, knowing the enthroned one. It says in verse 3, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So it's not just an attempt to describe the beauty and the majesty of the Lord in, in a wonderful descriptive uh, passage. These gemstones have biblical significance. Right? These, these are some of the gemstones that are found in the high priest's breastplate. They're representative of the tribes of Israel. They're representative of, of all the people of God. As the high priest carried them into God's presence in the sanctuary over his heart. So these were precious gems to signify that the people of God were precious to him. And the remarkable thing is that in this vision of God in heaven... The one on the throne has the appearance of these gems. God is, now and forever, the God of his people. That's who he is. That's his identity. His identity is linked to his people. And he's surrounded by a rainbow. So what's the biblical purpose of the rainbow? It's not just a beautiful thing. Uh, it's, it's explicit in Genesis 9 that the rainbow is to remind God 
of his covenant, of his promises, his faithfulness. It's the rainbows to remind him of the peace that he has pledged toward his new humanity. And since the rainbow surrounds him on his throne, we know that all his actions as sovereign Lord are done in the perfect faithfulness of his promises to his people. And he tells us about the purpose of the rainbow. He reveals it to us in this vision because he wants us to find strength and courage in the assurance that he always remembers his promises. <clears throat> and the rainbow, uh, it's strangely colored, right? Usually they're multicolored, but it has the appearance of an emerald. And that's probably because the emerald was the gemstone of the priests. So when God looks out upon the creation that he rules and judges, he's always looking through this emerald rainbow, which means he always remembers the reconciliation and the peace that are worked by the, the high priest. So when we see God in heaven, it's not just when he looks out upon us, but when we see him, we can only see him through the lens of our high priest, through that rainbow, that emerald rainbow, through Jesus, who represents us to God. In fact, <clears throat> this is the only way that this vision is even possible at all, that it's possible for us to have Revelation 4 in our Bibles. This vision begins with Jesus inviting John to join him in heaven. Jesus is the one with a voice like a trumpet calling John and saying, come up here, actually ascend, ascend to me. Jesus belongs there. Heaven is his home. He is heaven's only native son. And the only way we're welcome into God's holy presence, the only way heaven is opened to people like us is as Jesus Christ himself invites us and carries us there as the only native son opens the way for adopted sons and daughters also to call heaven their home. So you've been invited to join him there. And he has opened the way through his sacrifice on the cross. In John's gospel, Jesus calls himself the door. And here in John's vision, behold a door standing open in heaven. In the garden, in the beginning of the scriptures, God had shut the way to his holy presence and posted an angelic guard with flaming sword to keep out people like us, to keep out sinners from his presence. But Jesus died and rose again to open a new and living way for us. And like Jesus said earlier to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, Jesus has opened a door that no one can shut. So heaven is open to you in Jesus Christ. You might not be able to go there physically. You might not be able to have a vision like this one that John is having. Not yet. But you have this vision, this true vision of heaven recorded for you in the scriptures. It's heaven that is made accessible because of Jesus. And you're invited to set your minds on things in heaven where Jesus is. To consider heaven your, your true home and the place of your real citizenship. And that means uh, the assurance, the assurance of personally knowing the one who sits upon the throne of all reality. It means the assurance of personally knowing that God blesses you in the name of Jesus, personally knowing that he is sovereign 
over any and every circumstance, over all trials and tribulations that you might face in this world. Being personally assured, your knowledge of him means that uh, you know that he is able and he is willing to orchestrate everything in this world in his own holy ways that are beyond our imagining to orchestrate them for your good and for your life with him. Jesus is calling like a trumpet saying, come up here, know God as I know him and take heart. And sorry, you'd have to be a stubborn fool not to walk through that door. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the access that we have to heaven through Jesus, through our great high priest, through the one who is your true son, your only begotten son. We thank you that in his name, we can be adopted sons and daughters of you, that we can belong in heaven where you are, that, that it's guaranteed to us that we will see you on your throne. We will see you with these very eyes someday. And until then, we live in a world that is uh, characterized by strife and brokenness, uh, war, disease, famine, all sorts of conflict between people and, um, and sin against you, rebellion against you. We pray that this vision of you on your throne, in your glory, in your holiness, we pray that this vision would strengthen us, that you would lift us up in our hearts uh, as we face everything that we face in this world, all the trials and tribulations and temptations that come our way, especially the temptations to fear and doubt, to believe that things are spinning out of control, uh, that you are either not good or not able to do anything about our lives and the circumstances we face. We pray that you would keep us from despair as you fix our eyes on Christ and lift up our, our minds to heaven where where he is where you are where jesus has opened the way for us to have a true knowledge of you and eternal life with you forever we pray that you would strengthen us with this vision now and always we pray in jesus name amen